Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop, Coping with the Stresses of Caregiving When Your Loved One Has Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia, or CLL. And today's program is supported by AbbVie and the Diana Napoli Fund, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have a lot of you on the call today. There are over 151 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Germany, Iraq, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And we're delighted that you're spending the next hour with us um, to really learn more about um, some of the some coping, how to, how to cope, and, and, and also to get some medical update on uh, CLL as well. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I just have a few questions I'd like to ask all of you. And the reason we ask you these questions is that it, it's, it's a good, good for us to know um, what you know about this topic before we, um, the program begins. So I'm going to start with the first question. And um, this takes about two minutes, so it won't take very much time. Um, so the first question is on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the challenges of taking on the role of caregiving for a loved one with CLL, including decision-making. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the challenges in communicating with the healthcare team, including adherence on weekends and holidays. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I know how to manage family, friends, and traditions in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And there are just two more questions. I know self-care tips for managing caregiver stress. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. I understand the important role of long-distance caregivers for a loved one with CLL. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in, these, in, in addressing these questions, those of you who are live streaming this program. Um, it really helps us to understand better um, what you know about these topics before we um, uh, begin the program, and also it helps us in planning future programs. So thank you. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Adam Kate. And Dr. Kate is Assistant Professor, Division of Hematology, Department of Internal Medicine, the Ohio State Wexner Medical Center. 
And Dr. Kate will be addressing caring for your loved one with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, in the context of COVID-19, taking on the role of caregiving, your important role in decision-making, challenges in communicating with your healthcare team, your role in adherence, weekends and holidays, open notes, what they are and how they have changed your access to test results and healthcare reports, the importance of follow-up with your healthcare team to understand, interpret open notes, and, guided, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology and prepared list of questions. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kate. Hi. Thanks again for having me today. Uh, today, we will start by discussing coping with the stresses of caregiving when your loved one has CLL. When asked to talk today, I realized that my thoughts on this topic have a very specific lens. I view how my patients and their caregivers are doing at a moment when they are at least comfortable, which is in my office. I'm not at home with you. I'm not at the supermarket. I'm not at work, at school, or at family gatherings. I can only imagine what these situations are like for someone with CLL or someone who is the primary caregiver of someone with CLL. To this point, I want to highlight that I, am self, I myself am not a CLL caregiver, and I can only imagine what this is truly like. So in light of this, I'm going to approach my subject matter as if I was talking to any of you as caregivers, one-on-one, -on -one, but not in my office. Let's pretend this is over coffee or at a casual dinner. Try to make yourself comfortable while we talk. My first topic today is caring for your loved one with CLL in the context of COVID-19. So COVID has been really taxing for everybody, but really taxing for people with cancer and their caregivers. I can only imagine the roller coaster all of you have been going through over the past year. From initially hearing about the pandemic, realizing, realizing that your loved one is at a higher risk of complications with COVID because of their immunocompromised state, wondering when the pandemic will be over with lockdowns and the missing summer, to the hope you experienced when the mRNA vaccines were approved, to wondering if your loved one would ever respond to the vaccine, and now questioning if we will ever even reach herd immunity in the United States. All of these thoughts are probably swirling through your head simultaneously with good justification, and the anxiety surrounding it has to be profound. To that end, I want to first give a message of hope. The vaccines are very effective, and more and more data is coming out showing that patients and people who get the vaccine are not likely to spread COVID if they were to get infected. More and more people around the world are getting vaccinated, which means as time goes on, it's becoming more and more safe for patients who are immunocompromised to go back out into the world. Furthermore, we are now in warmer months, which means it's easier to be outside where we know it's safest for our patients. Thinking about these things, I truly believe that COVID pandemic is becoming less and less of a scary thing. There's still work to do, get, to do in this country and the world to get people vaccinated, but we're inching closer and closer to feeling more at ease. Thinking about CLL specifically in COVID, let's talk briefly about some new data coming out surrounding the vaccine and CLL. For one, I want to start by stating that none of the recent publications give us an answer to the most important questions surrounding the vaccine and CLL, which are, if my loved one has CLL and gets the vaccine, will that prevent them from getting severe COVID? Will it prevent them from having to get that hospitalized? Will it save their life? The answer to these questions are still elusive, and we have to wait some more time before this can be definitively answered. What we do know is that it appears that patients with CLL can still respond to the vaccine, but it appears not to be as robustly of a response as normal healthy individuals. We, also see, we are also seeing that patients on active treatment tend not to respond to the vaccine as well as people not on active treatment. Lastly, 
people with CLL who finish the two-shot series have a better response than those who only take one shot. What this means specifically for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is unclear. These are important answers, but doesn't get to the root question of will the vaccine help my loved one if they get infected. I think looking at the sum of the data, my advice is for caregivers and families to get the vaccine. We know that healthy people don't spread the virus if they are vaccinated. So if a CLL patient is surrounded by vaccinated individuals, the risk to that person goes way down, regardless of if the person with CLL is vaccinated or not the response to the vaccine. To that end, I've been telling my patients that it is okay to hang out with vaccinated people freely and that being out in the world is okay as long as you are able to maintain social distancing. Of note, this is not a universal recommendation, and I do advise each of you to ask your loved one's provider about what their opinion is. This is also a change to what I had been telling my patients just a few months ago, and once again, provides hope that things will continue to change for the better over time. I can only imagine how isolating COVID has been for patients and caregivers with CLL. Not only are you supporting someone with cancer or have cancer, but now a widespread virus threatens your livelihood as well. Continue to be supported listening to your loved ones. I'm really confident in saying that the risk of getting COVID continues to diminish as more and more people get vaccinated. Let's switch gears here and talk about your important role in decision-making. Getting a diagnosis of cancer is really a new language. For instance, in CLL, we have leukemia, lymphoma, lymphadenopathy, leukocytosis, to described as disease. We have these symptoms, constitutional symptoms, genetic variables, fish, cytogenetics, as a way to measure how active the CLL is. The names of our drugs are incredibly long and hard to pronounce, such as abrutinib, venetoclax, acalabrutinib, obinutuzumab. This can all be overwhelming and mind-numbing. You might have some guilt about struggling with all these intricacies of treatment, understanding the language, or even keeping up with all the appointments you have. It's my, it's my opinion that you don't need to be an expert to help with your loved one's care. You just need to know your loved one so you can help them make the decisions that are right for them. My best advice as a caregiver is to gain a full understanding of what your loved one wants so that if you're coming to a situation where you have to make a decision alone, you will have the confidence in saying, I know what they would have wanted. In line with this, and what I found helpful is to discuss with your loved one a singular core per per principle, whether that be, I want to live the longest possible, or I want to live the happiest life, or I want to spend the most time with my family. This guiding principle can be used as a backbone to make any decision, always going back to what the most important ideal is and what that means. Let's talk about some questions to discuss, as these are commonly discussed in CLL care, and we'll make sure that you and your loved one are on the same page during your appointments. What kind of person are they? Are they someone who wants all decisions to be made for them, or do they want to know every minute detail and possibility prior to making a decision? Are they going to want to see multiple physicians to get a second or third opinion? Or are they somewhere in between, a mix of all these things? What about testing? Are they someone who will have scan anxiety, lab anxiety, waiting for the provider to call with every lab test or scan result? Or are they someone who will wait and be okay for their next appointment? How about seeing a local oncologist? Or are they more comfortable seeing a specialist oncologist? What about if the specialist in CLL is far away, is that something that people are willing to sacrifice the driving for? What about their overall goals? When treatment is required, will they want a treatment that might be harder to tolerate, but you only have to take it for a short time period? Or are they someone who is okay taking a pill for the rest of their life? Lastly, are they interested in a clinical trial? Or do they want to go on a standard of care regimen? 
Any innate opinions on this? These are a lot of questions, but I think having these questions up front and coming to at least a preliminary decision of what these answers are will help you communicate with your provider appropriately. The more you and your loved one talk about each of these things, the better you can get on the same page as your provider, and sometimes some of these questions will help you find the right provider for you. One thing I always try to remind my patients is that everyone is unique, and cancer is cancer, and sometimes it just doesn't play by the books. What do I mean by this? Even if you are secure on the decision, it's important to be flexible. CLL is a chronic illness, and you're going to be playing the long game. Unexpected things will happen, and having a backbone of what your loved one would have wanted is going to help you get through it all. As a caregiver, you are the second set of ears, the note taker, and the idea tracker, helping to make decisions as they come, and this is a very important role to play. Moving on to challenges in communicating with the healthcare team. This topic is reflective on the last one in that it's important to talk to your provider openly about expectations. Do you expect someone to call you to go over every lab result or scan? Is an email, my chart, text message okay? How about talking with the nurse or the nurse practitioner instead of the provider? How do you get in touch with the provider if you need someone sat or urgently or not urgently? Having answered these questions up front will lead to a more fruitful and less anxiety-filled interaction. So let's talk about how I run my practice. What do I tell my patients about communication? This will provide a framework for you to take that to your own providers. But remember, everyone works differently, and it's not my way or the highway. Different things work for different people. One thing that I try to reassure my patients and caregivers about is that CLL is a chronic illness. It is not normal to come to my office and be very surprised about something. Things change in CLL gradually over time, such as labs and lymph node size. This puts patients at ease and hopefully causes them to be less stressed when they see me. I advise my patients and caregivers to call me if anything drastic happens, let's say a bad infection, need for surgery, hospitalization, really anything. We have a nursing triage line that can get in touch with me at any time at a moment's notice. But for the most part, if something is not too bothersome and hasn't changed very much, we can talk about it at our next visit because this is a chronic disease. In this way, I'm sending an expectation that I want my patients to call me if something happens and to message us if it's not so concerning. I do give a caveat that we are available at all times if something comes up and you want our opinion on it non-urgently. And we usually do this through our messaging system. Lastly, I make sure my nurse and nurse practitioner meet all new patients to put a face to a name. I want to remind everyone, too, that CLL is still cancer, and as I said, cancer sometimes doesn't read the by the books, and that as your oncologist, I'm happier if you call or message seeking advice than pretending like nothing happens. I'm always there to give an opinion on something. As treatment of CLL becomes more and more pill-based, let's talk about your role in adherence, weekends, and holidays. Uh, Pill-based is an issue because, as you may know, adherence becomes a problem when people are required to remember to take their pills every day. To avoid issues of having treatment shortages over weekends and holidays, it's always important to have an idea of how many refills and how an amount of medications are left at any given time. Try not to request refills of a medication when you're about to run out. Some medications require prior authorization that can take some time to get approved, and some can't be dispersed over the weekend. When you're on your last refill, try sending a message to your provider to give them a heads up and remind them to make sure that your medications are refilled. Furthermore, as a general rule of thumb, it is okay 
it, it is okay to miss a couple of days of medication. Please speak to your provider about your specific, your specific loved one's specific situation. As I don't know your specific treatment plan, but for the most part, if the patient is beyond the first few months of starting a medication, missing a few days of CLL-directed therapy probably won't cause sickness or cause the medication to not work. This is not me giving permission to miss medications, but hopefully putting your mind at ease if medication is missed mistakenly. If a few days of medication are missed, please let your provider know. We want to hear about missing medication doses. Furthermore, as always, tell us about any new medications that you start, even if they are over the counter. Some advice that I give to patients and their caregivers is to make sure you use a pill box and to consider keeping a pill diary. That way you know what you took your pills on the correct day. I also don't know, I also don't want you to feel guilty if a pill is missed. It's very easy to do, and once again, likely won't affect how effective the pill is over the long term. Taking these things into consideration as a caregiver, don't blame your loved one for missing a medication. Listen to them. Try to find out why it was missed and what you can all do to make it easier to take. Usually, some small tweaks to your daily life can fix the problem, whether it be setting an alarm to take the pill, taking the pill at the same time every day, or, stated earlier, utilizing a pill box. Once again, let's move on to talking about open notes. So, open notes was a research initiative started out of Harvard, encouraging physicians to share their notes with patients. This would allow patients to enable their full legal rights to their medical records. There has been more and more data coming out supporting this initiative, showing that patients who have access to their notes understand their medical condition more, have more control of their health decisions, and are able to catch errors or inaccuracies in their record. At The Ohio State University, where I work, this has been a recent change to the way we operate, where patients have automatic access to their notes and test results. If a clinician wants to hide something from a patient, they need to justify the reason and purposely click on a few different alerts to make this happen. The reason this is getting implemented is that U.S. citizens have a legal right to request and receive copies of their medical record through HIPAA. Previously, getting this information took a long time and cost money. Now, with new legislation starting April 5, 2021, immediate access is required and has, made it, and has been made possible through our electronic medical records. Therefore, as the test result, imaging result, or pathology results is finalized, it is made available to the patient regardless of whether physician provider has spoken to the patient about those results. So, what is an open note? A note is a doc any documentation that a physician writes about your or your loved one's medical case, and an open note is a note that the patient can see. Let's give you some familiarity of what you might see in the notes. Usually, the note starts with a one-sentence description of why the patient presented the clinic. It could be as simple as fever or CLL follow-up. Personally, I usually summarize the patient's clinical course into one sentence, such as 56-year-old female, treatment naive CLL, presents the follow-up, or 71-year-old male with releasing 17 CLL, currently on ibrutinib, presents with relapsing disease. The note then usually gives a summary of the medical history and then the subjective history, or how the patient is feeling or doing since I last saw them. We usually include medications, family, social, surgical, and past medical history, followed by a physical examination, summary of lab results, imaging, and pathology reports. The last section is the assessment and plan. The assessment is a summary of the entire note and usually includes your physician's thought process on why they are doing what they are doing. Lastly is the plan, which is usually bullet-pointed and describes in shorthand what the physician plans on doing. 
All of this information is written for each patient at every visit, and you as a caregiver will likely have increased access to this data as OpenNotes becomes more and more widespread throughout the country. One of the main concerns about OpenNotes is that you will receive bad news before a, patient has, before a physician has a chance to talk to you about it. This is a real concern and should not be taken lightly. One way to avoid this is to potentially not look at your test results before you hear from your provider. This is incredibly hard to do, likely not a plausible solution, and requires a lot of self-discipline. However, there has been some research recently that assuaged some worries about this concern. Investigators surveyed 3,418 patients and 96 clinicians about open notes. They found 98% of patients thought open notes was a good idea, whereas only 70% of oncologists thought it was a good idea. Interestingly, 44% of oncologists thought that patients would be confused by their notes whereas only 4% of patients reported feeling confused by their notes. In other studies out of Sloan, Kettering, and Duke, the benefit of open notes was clear, with over 90% of patients stating that it improved their understanding of their disease. However, there was a subset of patients that did read something they would not have wanted to know about, which caused them to become even more anxious or distressed. Overall, many providers are in fact finding that open notes helps patients stay informed. Many patients are reading their prior notes before coming in to see their physician, allowing them to understand their disease and follow up on to-do items listed in the notes. To me, open notes is a great opportunity. I always tell my patients and caregivers that I worry when patients aren't asking questions. I think that by having notes and lab results available to patients and caregivers will help them to gain a better understanding of their medical scenario and allow patients to formulate questions about what is happening with their health prior to coming to see me. I think that the research stated is also very enlightening in that it shows that patients aren't given the credit that they deserve and likely have a, better, a far better understanding of their diagnosis than oncologists perceive. To this end, I think open notes will only help people in the long run. Open notes will only allow patients and caregivers to become more active in their disease. However, it is important to highlight that question I brought up earlier, the potential to find out, quote, bad news from an email or to read something in a note that might cause some distress. There are a couple of points here to be made about interpretation of results. Although most results are binary, for example, high versus low, abnormal versus normal, or big versus little, results need to be interpreted by a provider. Many results are not as binary as depicted in a finalized result. Let me give you some examples. One test result we have in CLL that people assume is bad is actually, when it's actually good, is IGHV mutated. Patients with IGHV mutated status have a better prognosis, and in recent years, patients with unmutated disease are doing better and better. The term mutated has a bad connotation, and if someone were to see this, it might cause unneeded distress. Imaging might also be overstated. For instance, a change in lymph node size from one to two centimeters is not a huge change and likely can be monitored, whereas a change from one to five centimeters is more concerning. In an imaging result, the radiologist will summarize these two changes in the same way, saying something like, progressive increase in lymph node size observed. My point is that many of our results need interpretation. That is why it is important to maintain open communication with your provider to discuss these results as they happen. Personally, I find it helpful to schedule test results around a follow-up visit. That way, any results that come up can be discussed with the patient sooner rather than later. Lastly, let's briefly discuss telemedicine. In my opinion, the pandemic did expedite our move towards more telemedicine, which is a good thing. Different states have different rules about telemedicine, so please contact your local provider if you are interested in pursuing this option. 
Telemedicine can also be, also be a particular good thing for our CLL patients as it is a chronic disease. Mostly reliant on following lab, following lab results, discussions can be done over the phone or video. Telemedicine usually involves a telephone conversation or a video visit using a variety of different technologies. If you have a telemedicine visit planned, make sure you are familiar with the technology required. Try logging into the platform before you visit so you understand the login process. As communication can sometimes be a little less personal during one of these visits and clarity can be an issue, I would recommend a plan to the questions prior to logging on to your visit. And most of all, make sure your phone, iPad, or computer is either charged or plugged in prior to the start of your visit. I want to end my segment by just stating once again that it's a very exciting time for CLL for both patients and researchers and caregivers. There's a lot of new treatments that are coming out on the horizon. Specifically, there are many new meetings that are being presented in the next few weeks, including the European Hematological Association and the American Society for Clinical Oncology, where many new treatments are being presented that are not only safer than the medications that we have now, but appear to maybe be more efficacious. So keep a lookout in the next few months about some exciting news about CLL. Thank you for having me today. It's always a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kate. That was really quite a wonderful presentation, just superb. And really, um, you set the context for our program today as well. A um, lot of information, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, but incredibly well presented and just, um, I think, very reassuring to everybody listening to you. So thank you so much. Thanks. And our next speaker is Ms. Sharon Flynn. And Ms. Flynn is a nurse practitioner, nursing research and translational science, Clinical Cancer Nursing Department, National Institutes of Health, Clinical Research Center. And this then will be addressing coping with each day, special occasions, anniversaries, and birthdays, managing family, friends, and traditions in the context of COVID-19, long-distance caregiving, and self-care tips for managing stress. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Flynn. Oh, great. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to be on today's educational workshop. And I would also like to take this opportunity to warmly welcome all of our participants who are on the call. Whether you're a person living with CLL or a caregiver of someone with cancer, you recognize the important role caregivers play in your loved one's management. And I applaud you for finding out more information on these important topics. And so first I'm going to start with um, coping each day, special occasions, anniversaries, and birthdays. Um, our lives in the past year with COVID-19 have dramatically changed, and every single one of us celebrated um, at least one birthday, anniversary, or important milestone during the pandemic. And that doesn't mean that um, we ignored it. Hopefully, we celebrated it. And um, if you didn't, I, I want to encourage you to celebrate those important milestones. Um, COVID-19 pushed us to celebrate them in a different way than maybe we previously did. Um, and so how can we celebrate them in a safe manner? Um, First, I want to encourage you to talk to your loved one about how they would like to celebrate that special occasion. Um, would they like to get, to, get, to get together in person um, with a, a small group of people, um, just a couple people, maybe outside? Or would they prefer a video call with um, multiple people on it? Um, we don't know until we ask 
um, our loved one what they would prefer. Maybe a 10-minute video call with um, a couple people is about all they can manage at this time. Whereas we, as maybe the caregiver, would like to spend more time with a larger group. Um, so consider um, what they are requesting and respect their decision. Um, another way to celebrate these milestones is to pull out photo albums. And um, you can do that online on the um, either like a uh, Zoom call or a Teams call, um, any, any platform that you choose or a phone call or maybe at um, a small gathering. Um, and um, maybe you have a digital um, savvy family member that can put together a digital photo album. Take some of those um, pictures. Um, and put them online to celebrate. Um, and while the family album is out, share those stories. Um, we all have funny family stories to share with one another. And uh, I think we probably have even more after this year of COVID. It's a great time to reconnect with each other. Um, it doesn't matter how old um, or young the members are that are sharing in this. Um, of sharing of family stories, and it's a great way to create new family memories. Um, and don't forget um, those postcards and what we now call snail mail. Um, it's another way to to send um, a and celebrate a greeting, um, especially if someone is in the hospital or not feeling up to um, an in-person or a video call. Um, encourage family members to, to send those cards to them. And speaking of um, getting together with family and friends, um, we're going to talk about that in the context of COVID-19. Um, as Dr. Kate said, communication is the key to not only managing medical appointments, but also managing family and friends who might want to come and visit you and your loved one. Um, family and friends may not know the pressure that you're under or what your typical day as a caregiver looks like. Help them understand that. Tell them what a typical day um, is for you. Um, and give them dates and times that would be um, better times for them to, to come and visit and what precautions they need to take in order to visit you. So some general guidelines include screening for people who might be sick that are coming to visit you. Um, here in the United States, we are in uh, springtime, heading towards summer, and a lot of seasonal allergies um, uh, can mimic um, signs of sinus infections um, and COVID-19. So if anybody has a fever, um, if they've had um, GI upset, um, um, sneezing, coughing, those are people that um, you would want to have visit at another time. So to screen them, are they feeling sick? And if so, um, invite them to come when they are feeling um, better. Anyone coming to um, your house or if you're going to a place, um, depending on the restrictions in your area, remember to wash your hands either with soap and water um, for at least 20 seconds or to use hand sanitizer with at least 70% um, alcohol content. We have lots of young children. Um, I have um, nieces in my family, and so they uh, are smaller children and need help with hand washing. Um, so don't forget about them um, when it comes to hand washing. 
um, encourage family members and friends um, to, re to receive the COVID vaccine. And then when possible, prioritize outdoor activities versus um, indoor activities at this point. Um, and going back to the celebrations, um, after you've, you've screened the group, um, there's no right way to celebrate. Um, and so during 2020 and on, we've had to think of new creative ways um, to celebrate those um, traditions. And so, um, again, encourage, talk to your loved one to figure out between the two of you what would be the best way to celebrate um, that particular um, milestone, birthday, anniversary. Um, next, I'm going to talk about long-distance caregiving, and our long-distance caregivers are anyone, anywhere, um, who are not living with the person receiving care. And so our long-distance caregivers might live in the same town, um, or they might live on the other side of the world. And they are very important um, in the care of the person with um, cancer because they can take on different roles and provide relief for the local caregivers. They may not be there physically in person, um, but they can still help out in many, many ways. So the first thing, um, I have just kind of a list of different roles that the long-distance caregiver can help with. And they can help with setting up and scheduling medical appointments or managing prescription refills. Um, just as Dr. Kate said, don't wait until the day before to request a prescription refill. If you know, um, you know, you see your pills are getting low, you have about a week's worth, that's the perfect time to contact your medical provider and start working on that prescription refill or 10 days out. Um, this is where a long-distance caregiver can keep track of when those prescription refills are due and um, remind you, um, remind the caregiver, the person living with CLL, to, to schedule that appointment um, or that prescription refill. They can help with insurance. Um, if you have a huge stack of insurance papers that you're just feeling a bit too overwhelmed to go through at this point, this is the perfect time to pull in another family member um, that you trust to help um, work through all of those documents and um, read them through and then explain them to you um, and help you with um, maybe the bill paying, the finances. You, the long-distance caregivers can also arrange for in-home care by hiring a professional caregiver um, to provide respite care for your caregiver. So if you're a caregiver and you're in need of a break, um, this is a time that um, having a professional in-home caregiver can assist with, with providing respite care. Uh, Long-distance caregivers can also provide emotional support. So if you're a caregiver and you're, you're at your wit's end for a day, um, you know, please reach out to one of your long-distance um, friends, um, family members, um, and get that emotional support. Um, Long-distance caregivers can serve to keep family and friends updated and informed. They can do that either through email messages or through a website like Caring Bridge, or they can triage phone calls um, for you. Um, they can be designated as kind of the communication uh, person for your family member. 
I know for me, um, a couple years ago, I was in a serious car accident, and my husband was just overwhelmed with the um, medical attention that I needed. And so we have a fabulous family friend who served as that communication person, and she updated um, family, friends, workplaces, um, with the latest information so that my husband didn't have, you know, 20 calls and, and emails coming in per day. So think about having that communication person. Um, Long-distance caregivers can coordinate errands, such as having food delivered to the house, yard work being performed, um, and scheduling family meetings. If there are tough decisions that, that need to be made or you want to pull the family together, um, a larger family, to, to have a family meeting, this is a great thing that the long-distance caregiver can do. Um, the Leukemia and, Leuke Leukemia and Lymphoma Society has a pediatric caregiver workbook. And I recommend that even though this isn't a pediatric um, illness, their workbook is outstanding and has many more suggestions on there for caregivers. And so I would encourage you to, um, to look at that uh, website in addition to the CLL Society. And um, next I'm going to talk about some self-care tips for managing stress. And um, something that always hits me um, every time I get on an airplane is, and you've probably heard this, you must put your oxygen mask on yourself before you can help anyone else put on their mask. And this holds true for being a caregiver. You must take care of yourself before you can help anyone else. And so one of the number one things um, for self-care tips that I have is to set aside time for yourself. Now, this doesn't mean you're setting aside time to go to the grocery store or to wait in line for a prescription. I want to encourage you to find a stress reduction activity that works for you. Um, maybe it's going for a walk outside by yourself. Maybe it's going for a walk with a friend, um, going out for coffee with a friend, playing your favorite songs and dancing along. Maybe you have a hobby that you've put aside since you started caregiving for your loved one. Um, pull that hobby back out. Maybe it's gardening, painting, journaling, um, watching a movie, reading a book. Um, find something to help you relieve that stress. That is what we call your, your me time. Um, give yourself permission to laugh, to smile, to have fun. You as the caregiver are just as important um, as the person you are taking care of and you need to give yourself permission to take care of yourself. And so some other things for managing stress so that we're at our best is finding, um, going back to the basics of, of finding balance in our life. And so I'm talking about um, what sleeping, moving, and your diet. So how are you sleeping at night? Um, are you striving to get at least six to eight hours of sleep at night? Um, and I know for me, during the, the height of COVID about a year ago, the only way I could do this was to turn off the news. So have those strategies um, for your nighttime ritual. What helps you get the best night of sleep that you can? Um, next, what does your diet look like? 
uh, during quarantine, I think some of us, especially me, um, I went to the comfort foods um, about a year ago, um, the macaroni and cheese and the ice cream. And so um, once we got over kind of our initial shock of COVID, um, incorporating back those fruits and vegetables into our diet, um, along with exercise, getting at least 10,000 steps or more a day. Um, finding the balance between those three things helps me have a better day. And a, as a reminder for our caregivers to keep up with their own doctor's appointments. Um, taking care of someone with cancer doesn't mean that you get to ignore your medical needs um, and only focus on your loved one's needs. It means that you need to get your medical checkups um, and stay on track with your medication regimen um, and your recommended um, cancer screenings, such as mammograms and colonoscopies. Um, medical centers are open, um, and, they, and dental offices are open, and now is the time to make that appointment and get back on that regular schedule. Some other stress-relieving tips. Um, I talked about um, an outlet for your feelings, whether that's journaling or um, moving back into a hobby, um, such as photography, painting, gardening, um, drawing. Um, find a way to process your feelings. Get them down, um, whether it's on paper or through some other creative form. There are counselors available um, for all of us. Um, everyone needs someone to talk to, and especially when you're going through a stressful period um, like um, taking care of someone with cancer. And so sometimes our caregivers feel that they need to protect or shield loved ones from the stress, anxiety, worry, and a sense of doom. Um, talking with a professional counselor like the social work teams at Cancer Care can help relieve some of the stress of caregiving. Give yourself permission to talk about your own individual needs. Get your questions answered. What concerns do you have? Sometimes talking to others going through the same situation um, can help um, provide a sense of normalcy that, oh, someone else is going through that. Well, what tips do you have um, that you can share with me? This is just one of um, the educational programs offered. Um, so I would um, encourage you to seek out counseling services or consider joining a support group. Um, support groups are now available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Some of them are cancer specific. Um, some of them are for um, just cancer caregivers. Um, so I would encourage you to look into a support group. Um, they may meet live, um, either online, um, or they may be through an asynchronous method where you can post on a discussion board um, and get answers to your questions. Um, and finally, I want to wrap up um, as a stress care tip is to ask for help. Um, in our American culture, we like to think that we can do everything by ourselves and that asking for help is a sign of weakness. And we know this simply is not true. Um, we need everyone's help, starting with the medical team and ending with um, the post office to help get us through um, situations. And so if you have any questions, um, know that your medical team is there to help you. Um, ask. Um, if you need the first appointment of the day or the last appointment of the day because you're a caregiver and you're still trying to manage work and taking care of someone with cancer, 
ask the team. Um, they can work with you to, to help with flexibility of those appointments. Um, and I just want to wrap up by saying um, if you're feeling depressed, maybe you're still in a state of shock from the cancer diagnosis, we know this can affect um, the caregiving experience. So um, one of you might be tempted to skip your medications, skip medical appointments, um, or maybe even a complete month of treatment. And I'm here to, to remind you that you are worth fighting for and that it does matter. Support is here, and all you have to do is reach out. Um, we're here. We, we will help you get through this process. And so um, with that, I want to thank you very much for being on this call today. And I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Messner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Lynn. That was really um, extraordinary. Just a wonderful presentation and a lot of very helpful information and tips for um, for caregivers. So thank you so much. And um, I know there will be questions for you as well during the Q&A. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Patty Kaufman. Ms. Kaufman is co-founder and director of communications, the CLL Society, Inc., and she'll be describing the free programs and services of the CLL Society. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kaufman. Hello, everyone. I'm Patricia Kaufman, the co-founder and communications director of the nonprofit CLL Society. Whether you are newly diagnosed or have been a CLL patient for a very long time, our learning tools will meet you at any stage of your CLL journey. We provide these free services to help you learn to advocate for the best possible care for your CLL because we believe that smart patients get smart care. You may be feeling overwhelmed as a caregiver when faced with accompanying the CLL patient to doctor appointments. Let us help you get your bearings. A CLL patient's doctor appointments are much anticipated events because they offer opportunities to receive updates on disease status, information about treatment options, education, and sound guidance from the healthcare provider. You will want to get as much as possible from these appointments. Advanced preparation for doctor's appointments by the patient and caregiver can possibly improve outcomes. This is where the caregiver can really shine, and CLL Society is here to help. Preparing for doctor's appointments is a learned skill, and we provide helpful templates to keep you organized. We hope that you will check out the on-demand replay of CLL Society's May 27, 2021 webinar titled Getting Maximum Benefit from Doctor Appointments and the accompanying resources. Our featured caregiver, Steve DeLessie, sets a great example by showing us how he keeps everything important about his wife's CLL journey organized, written out in advance, and at his fingertips for every one of her doctor appointments. CLL Society can now help you and your caregiver do the same by providing four easy forms to bring to the appointment, a symptoms checklist, CLL Society's Keeping Track of Lab Results form, a medical history form where you can show the patient's major CLL events, and a form for preparing your most pressing medical questions in advance to help both patient and caregiver remember to ask those questions. 
find out how Steve puts together this valuable little gem of a package, updates it for each appointment, and learn how it can even get you out of a jam should there be an emergency and you need to bring someone other than your regular healthcare provider up to pace. So we hope that you and your caregiver will visit our site, roll up your sleeves, and put together one of these packages for each and every future doctor visit. Other services of the CLL Society are as follows. Updates on COVID-19. Currently, of special concern is determining how well CLL patients are forming antibodies to COVID-19 vaccines and continuing the safe practices of thorough hand washing, mask wearing, and social distancing, which are all prudent procedures for those who may still be immunocompromised. The CLL Society covers all the major hematology conferences, interviewing leading CLL researchers to keep you updated on the latest clinical trials, delivering up-to-date information concerning credible cutting-edge treatment options, and explaining what this research means to CLL patients. If you do not have access to a CLL expert and are concerned that you may not be receiving the best care for your CLL, please apply to our expert access program for a no-cost second opinion from a CLL expert. In order to qualify, you must have a diagnosis of CLL, live in the United States, and not be in the care of a CLL expert. Our test before treat program will make sure that you are aware of critical tests that must be done before considering any treatment regimen. And last but not least, don't spend another month alone. Let us connect you with other CLL patients and caregivers through one of our CLL-specific support groups, meeting every month virtually across the United States. Stay in the know with the CLL Society and look forward to Tuesdays. Visit our website and sign up to receive our Tuesday weekly alerts to get the kind of knowledge that strengthens the ability of you and your caregiver to advocate on your own behalf for the best possible care for your CLL. Stay strong and stay safe and keep in touch with us. We are all in this together. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Coffin. That was really wonderful, just a, a wonderful description of the CLL Society and all the services that you offer. And for those of you who are not familiar with it or haven't taken advantage of it, please do. Um, and many of you have already, but for those of you who haven't, and you might want to visit their website even if you have because there's probably something new there that you might not have seen. So thank you so much. What a wonderful resource for everybody on the call today. And a unique to um, CLL. It's the only organization that does focus only on CLL, so that's, that's what's unique about it as well. Hi, I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services um, for all of you. Um, cancer Care is a national organization, um, and we provide um, free programs and services to people throughout the United States. Um, and um, so what do those programs look like? So we do have a hope line. It's an 800 number that people can call into and speak with our oncology social workers and ask questions and concerns that are on your mind that they're there for you. Um, we, we help people with all different types of cancer, CL being one of them. Um, in addition, we do offer case management, which means that if we don't have the solution to your problem ourselves, we will connect you to an organization that can help you. Either it be a 
a regional, um, a local, or national organization, and we'll walk you through that process so we're sure you get to the place you need to get to in terms of that help. We stay with you until you get the help from the organization that we're recommending. We don't just give you a list of places to call. We ourselves will go with you to those organizations virtually. Now, we also offer uh, practical financial and co-payment assistance um, as well, and, and, that's, and, and that's been particularly important during this time. It's always been a part of Cancer Care's history of giving, of providing financial assistance to people. Um, however, it's particularly been important during this uh, period of time uh, during COVID, particularly people have been particularly concerned about this issue. We also offer online support groups. Um, we offer workshops like the one you've participated in today, about 75 of them per year on different types of cancer um, and, and different topics as well. And um, we also have a number of publications, so a, a resource for all of you. Now, at the end of today's program, you're going to get a, um, a SurveyMonkey evaluation. In that evaluation will be all the different resources we offered, both CLL Society resources and, and cancer care resources and any others that we think would be of help to you, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society resources, so you'll be able to access those, those um, at your fingertips. Now, before we move on to the Q&A, I just have some final questions to ask all of you, um, and then we'll move on to the Q&A. And so our, our first question, and this will again take about two minutes, our first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the challenges of taking on the role of caregiving for a loved one with CLL, including decision-making. And again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident about coping with the challenges in communicating with the healthcare team, including adherence on weekends and holidays. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in how to manage family, friends, and traditions in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. Um, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in using self-care tips for managing caregiver stress. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the important role of long-distance caregivers for a loved one with CLL. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It helps us to know what you knew coming into the program, what you know now, and also um, it'll help us to better plan future programs. So thank you all. And now we have time for Q&A, um, and I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. Michelle. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And so a question for Dr. Um, 
Katay, um, what is your thought on getting immunoglobulin injections? That's a great question. So immunoglobulin injections, otherwise known as IVIG, which stands for intravenous immunoglobulins, is usually given to patients with CLL who have both recurrent infections, usually viral infections, usually involving the sinuses, um, also with IgG levels less than 500 in some cases, less than 400, and less than 200. So in general, uh, for my patients, if they have low IgG levels and they have recurrent infections, I definitely do consider it. Um, however, one thing that I do say is that sometimes insurance companies just give a really hard time with approving this. So there hasn't been that great data around this, and so it can be slightly controversial, but most CLL docs do think that it does provide benefit in decreasing rates of infections for patients with low IgG levels. And so I would talk to your provider about it. I do give it to my patients. The other CLL docs in my uh, practice all do give it to their patients as well. Excellent. Thank you. And um, another question um, for you, Dr. Kate. Are there trials checking the immunity level of COVID vaccine on CLL patients? That's a great question. So there are a couple of trials uh, that are currently ongoing in the United States. So there is one out of the uh, Leukemia Lymphoma Society that you may have heard about. Uh, there's also one out of uh, Fred Hutch in uh, Seattle. Um, and uh, some of these uh, provide vaccines. Some of them do not provide vaccine and are just testing. Um, and then you can also get a test through your provider to determine if you have spike antibodies against the vaccine. So what I will say here is that most of the testing that can be done standard of care for antibodies against the spike protein is usually just a positive or negative. Do you have it or do you not have it? And what I try to remind my patients is that even if you test negative for the spike protein, which is the, anti is, is, which is the part of the virus that the antibody vaccine is targeting, is that the vaccine can stimulate other parts of your immune system to target the uh, virus that is not represented by the uh, spike antibody. And so uh, what I remind patients is that we really just don't know what the test really means. And so it kind of gets back to the point I was making during the talk, that we don't know yet what the ultimate answer is. If you get a vaccine and you have CLL, Will it prevent you from getting severe COVID? We just don't know the answer to that question yet. So that's why I'm advising my patients to have their family members and caregivers and friends get the vaccine so that they can be um, protected if they are hanging out with the people that they know and love. Um, some of the research uh, initiatives that I mentioned, the one at Seattle and the LLS, I do believe that they are testing other components of the blood to see if there's other responses besides the spike protein, but I don't know the intricacies of the testing that's being done. Excellent. Thank you. Very helpful. Thank you. And um, another question for you, um, Dr. Kate. Um, my father has been vaccinated, but because I heard immunity is lower for people with blood cancer, could my unvaccinated children visit him? That's a great question. And I don't know the answer to that question. Um, the data surrounding children is that they don't get as sick and they tend not to spread it as much as adults, but they are still a reservoir for the disease. And so I think that for unvaccinated children, 
who have a blood cancer, CLL specifically, um, to be probably a little bit more cautious, probably stick to hanging out outside and try to avoid close contact if possible. I think um, as we more, know more and more data about CLL patients uh, being protected by the vaccine, we'll be able to better verify this answer. So once we get to that really crux question of do patients with CLL who get the vaccine, does it prevent severe illness? If the answer is yes, then I would feel more comfortable saying that it's probably okay for them to hang out with children who have not been vaccinated. And then also just a quick follow-up to that is, um, so there are some vaccines now for children, but could you specify the ages of those children so that people are clear about that? I know if there's some regional, maybe yeah. perhaps differences. Yeah, I believe, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's for children above the age of 12. And I believe it's the, uh, I think it's the AstraZeneca, no, it's, it's the, uh, I think some mm -hmm. Pfizer, uh, I think, mm -hmm. no, it's the Pfizer vaccine that's good for about 12. Excellent. Okay. So that's just something to keep in mind um, as well. But the outdoor piece sounds like a good good idea as well. Um, and now um, for Ms. Flynn, um, what is the name of the Pediatric Caregivers book and the website, please? Oh, sure. It is um, – let me just pull it up. Bear with me for one second. Um, I believe it was the leukemia, oh, there it is, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And if you search for their pediatric caregiver workbook, you'll find it. Um, it it's not, you know, we don't usually look under the pediatric. Um, I'm an adult provider. Um, but I stumbled upon this resource and just thought that it was absolutely amazing um, and have been recommending it for all of my patients. So Leukemia and Lymphoma and Society. And it's the www.lls.org. We'll be sending that resource to all of you as well, so you'll have it um, when you get the um, SurveyMonkey evaluation. There'll be those resources in there as well. Um, That's also a great question for uh, the kids' question I got earlier, too, is maybe talk to a pediatrician about it, because they may have a different opinion than I do as well. Uh, they might be more up-to-date on risk of transmission from kids to adults and kids. I just don't know that data really very well. And so they may have a different opinion. It's, good. it's a good point to talk to them, for sure. Excellent. And now this question from Ms. Flynn, is there a support group for caregivers where we can talk about the issues we have and try to help each other during these tough times? And I suppose Ms. Flynn and I can both weigh in on this one, but if you want to go first, Ms. Flynn? Sure, absolutely. Um, and I know that um, for many of the hospitals it is – um, through an online platform versus in-person at this moment. Um, but definitely the CLL Society, which does a great job of matching um, patients or caregivers with other people that um, are going through CLL either treatment or are a caregiver. And then um, I'll turn it over to you, Dr. Messner, to talk about cancer care. Yes, and we do have a number of support groups as well, and so that um, if you um, come to, we'll give you information about the Cancer Care uh, website. It's um, www.cancercare.org. Um, um, you would come to our website, and we would actually um, be able to um, to help you to um, connect to um, our support groups. We have so many different types of support groups for um, for caregivers, as does the um, uh, 
um, CLL Society and the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, just to name a few. And, of course, your hospital setting also may happen because now that there is less in-person groups, and everyone is offering um, these um, virtual groups to people, and they're so helpful to everyone. Um, and also some places do match you to another caregiver. Um, again, it's all done virtually, so um, that's another resource as well. Well, I know that we could go on for a good part of the afternoon, but I, I realized that we had said this would be an hour program, so I want to thank our speakers, really, for just being so terrific. And I want to thank all of you who have asked such great questions that have also been really added to our call today tremendously. Um, these great questions, great speakers, what more could you ask for? Um, I also um, I just want to be um, to get back to the issue, really, of the, the um the questions we may not have answered because I know there are many more that are in queue. So for those of you who got to ask a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who thought of the question during the program but didn't get to ask it, we ask you to go back to your treating healthcare team because your the institutions that you're getting your care from, they may have resources also for you um, that um, and may be able to be further helpful to you. Um, remember, your healthcare team consists both of the medical personnel, um, but also it consists of patient navigators, oncology nurses, oncology social workers, financial advisors there. I mean, really a, a host of people that could be of help to you. So do take advantage of your own institution resources. And we do know that you all like to go to other places to get information. We want you to go to credible resources. That's why we partner with the CLL Society. And we will also send you information, of course, about the Leukemia Lymphoma Society and, of course, about, um, about cancer care as an additional resources to get information. But the CLL Society would seem to be the go-to place to get information. Now, as we conclude the program today, um, I would not want any one of you to feel alone as we end the program, although I know it's durable to feel alone and particularly to feel alone dealing with CLL and also dealing with CLL in the context of what we're going through right now in terms of the, uh, I'd like to say the remnants of COVID, but it still seems to be out there. So to some extent, um, those kinds of questions that you have. Um, we want you to now feel you're part of a community of support, and we're all here for you. Um, and we're here for you um, basically um, either on the telephone or online, and that also applies to people internationally because if you were to email any of us, we would try to connect you with resources in your own country as well. So we all are connected and to some extent in wanting to help. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.